0: If you would please take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 5. We come to the fifth chapter of Daniel and the fifth story uh, in this book. A story from which we get the expression, the handwriting is on the wall. I think it is a familiar story. But what we need to understand is that this is a story that is written in contrast to what we saw last Sunday in chapter 4. It's a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And I would go so far as to argue that we cannot have a good understanding of chapter 5 if, in fact, we don't consider chapter 4. Because otherwise what you're left with is another story of Daniel being able to interpret or to understand something and give the meaning to the king. And everyone's sort of wowed by what he does. Um, And so let's go on to the next story. There's much more to the story. Just briefly to go over chapter four. Um, When we come to chapter four, as I said last week, we could argue that God had dealt gently with Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter one, uh, God shows by the example of Daniel and his friends that God's way is right versus Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two. Daniel is able to interpret the dream and it tells of God's eternal kingdom. Then in chapter 3, he throws the three Hebrews into the fiery furnace and he realizes that God is God over all. He is the one to be worshipped. That God, in a sense, deals gently, sort of prodding Nebuchadnezzar along the way. But when we come to chapter 4, things change. See, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar has gotten the message. And the message is that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, which is repeated, by the way, three times in chapter 4. Um, yeah, but he's, he still hasn't quite gotten it. And so in chapter 4, a more radical approach is taken. So I mentioned last week, the structure of chapter 4 is A, B, C, B, A. So the beginning and the ending of the chapters deal with praise. They praise. Nebuchadnezzar praises the God of heaven. B is about the tree, this cosmic tree, this enormous tree that reaches to the heavens and people can see it from the ends of the earth. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what this means. So C is Daniel giving the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is that tree. God has raised him up. But as in the dream, the Holy One from Heaven says, cut it down, so Nebuchadnezzar will be cut down. And Daniel calls on him to repent. It's really interesting, because we will see in chapter 5, Daniel doesn't do that. But he does with Nebuchadnezzar. He calls him to repent. And then we go back to be the dream again. Now it is fulfilled. Now it's not just a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is walking around and says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built? And immediately he becomes like an animal. This is what the dream had foretold. That he would lose his mind, basically, until he came to acknowledge that God is Lord, he is sovereign over all the kings. And he did come to see that. And then we come back to A, and that is praise. He praises God that he is the most high over the kingdoms of men. So we have basically gentle, 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 and then finally in four there's a radical approach, but Nebuchadnezzar seems to get the message of who God is. That's not the case with Belshazzar in chapter five. Before we get into chapter five, and there's a part of me that hesitates to bring this up, but... Um, I think it's important. There are things in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that people say are historically inaccurate. And therefore, since they are historically inaccurate, we should discount everything that Daniel says. Um, Yeah, that's not the case, but I think things need to be sort of explained. As a chapter opens, we are told of King Belshazzar. And if you keep going through the chapter, you might think that he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse number 11, the queen says, your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, In reality, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were not related by blood at all. In fact, what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar is overthrown by a man named Nabonidus. And Nabonidus is the father of Belshazzar. Nabonidus was the king, and then Cyrus comes in. So technically, Belshazzar was never king. So why is he referred to as king? And people say, aha, the Bible has a mistake in it. Um, The reality is that uh, Nabonidus got sick, and he put his son as sort of a regent in his place. So technically speaking, for a period of time, Belshazzar was acting as the king. Okay? you know, legally you could say he wasn't the king, but he's acting in the place of the king, but that's in fact um, what happened. Why is Nebuchadnezzar called his father? This is this is not, I think, difficult to understand. In many cultures, those who come before you are known as your fathers, you know, your forefathers. And particularly if you're in a, a position of power, you want to show continuity um, you don't want to say, oh, yeah, we're starting all over. This is a brand new beginning. You want to have a sense of continuity. So the fact that he is called, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is called his father, I think, is, is not a problem. Um, we were talking the other night that uh, in, in Hawaii, every woman is apparently an auntie, you know. Well, in those days, if somebody came before you, that person could be considered your father. What about Darius? We'll look at Darius in chapter six. Um, technically, Darius did not conquer Babylon; it was Cyrus. Okay, Darius was appointed to rule in Babylon while while Cyrus is going around and cleaning up, you know, and, and taking over. The Persians take over. Um, so again, that is not a problem. But I bring it up because, in fact, somebody may say to you. Oh, you guys studied Daniel chapter 5. Did you know there are all these historical inaccuracies? And in fact, there are not. In fact, one of my concerns is that we will be distracted by these things and we will fail to get the point of this chapter. And that is a striking contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And particularly God's final word to Nebuchadnezzar and his final word to Belshazzar. What we see in chapters 4 and 5 is the story of Nebuchadnezzar who has a dream, judgment is pronounced, and he has a good end. In chapter 5, we have the story of Belshazzar who has a vision. He sees the hand writing on the wall. Judgment is pronounced, and he comes to a bad end. I think one of the things we see is that the word of God can in fact give life, and it can give death. And in chapter 4, life to Nebuchadnezzar and in chapter 5, Death to Belshazzar. The chapter opens immediately with a contrast between how Nebuchadnezzar treated the things of God and how Belshazzar does. Look, if you would, at the first four verses. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. To see the contrast, we have to go back to the very beginning of Daniel that when Nebuchadnezzar goes into Uh, Jerusalem, this is not the second time when he finally destroys it, but he takes things from the temple of God. Um, And it says, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon or Shinar and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, one might think that what Nebuchadnezzar did was, in fact, sacrilege. It's blasphemous. You take the things from the true God and you put them in a temple of a false God. But the reality is Nebuchadnezzar showed respect. He was saying, these are sacred objects, and I must put them in a place where other sacred objects are. I will put them in the temple of my God. Belshazzar, on the other hand, was treating them in a sacrilegious way, sort of adding a little novelty to his drunken orgy with his nobles, his wives, and concubines. I think Nebuchadnezzar would have never done such a thing as this for all the things that Nebuchadnezzar did. He would have never taken the things that belonged to God and treated them with such contempt and such a disrespect. But I want to be clear, and we should be clear. Belshazzar and his nobles are not religious fanatics. Um, They are not, in fact, trying to put down the God of Israel. I think that's never entered their mind. They're simply having a good time and they're drinking, but they are treating something that is sacred or things that are sacred as just common things. They're not launching an anti-God campaign. And as one commentator put it, they very casually put Daniel on the shelf. They're not persecuting Daniel. They're not persecuting the Jews. They're just ignoring them. and the more I study Daniel, the more I see it as being so applicable to our situation today in this country. I would say for the most part, we do not suffer persecution at all. If there's anything we suffer, it's being ignored. People just don't pay any attention to us. Daniel is there. Daniel has interpreted dreams. He is a wise man. He has given the king great advice. He set on the shelf. One writer put it, they did not even respect him enough to bother persecuting him. Just, just ignore him. Now, the handwriting on the wall. It is in the context of this great banquet that something happens, um, which, as in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the wise men, the diviners, the sorcerers, could not interpret. And, and I mentioned this in a previous sermon. This really throws me, because I would think... You know, make something up. You know, if you don't know what it is, make something up. But in several cases, we see they are completely stumped. They don't know what is being said. Verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his, le- his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Again, you're promised all these things and you're going to be the third person in the kingdom. Can't you say, well, this is what I think it means? But they do not. And I, I do think that this is God intervening. That God keeps these men from making something up. No one can interpret it. But somebody remembers Daniel. Look at verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Belshazzar sends for him, verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? By the way, I hope it's not reading too much into it, but this almost seems to start out with a put-down. You know, aren't you one of those yahoos we brought over from... You're not really from here, are you? Aren't you one of those exiles that we brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So, from verse 17 to 28, we have Daniel speaking. Um, And I want to actually look at it in reverse order. Look at the writing first. And then what it means. And then the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the sin of Belshazzar. So let's look at the inscription first, beginning in verse 25, here in Daniel 5. This is what the inscription that was written. or This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, techo, parson. You'll notice in the NIV it has a note, uparson, and upt simply means and. This is what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The inscription is actually in Aramaic, which means that the wise men, the astrologers, the diviners, serfs, they should have been able to read it. This should not have been, uh, been difficult for them. Aramaic, by the way, has no vowels. They have to be supplied. So these there are 13 consonants in this inscription that are put there uh, on the wall, and uh, as is the case in some other languages, um, as in ancient Tagalog that I study, you have to supply, and sometimes it involves a lot of guesswork. What, what is missing? What is the vowel that should go here? But Daniel reads it, and he says it's many many teko parson. Many is actually in the New Testament uh, mina. It's a form of currency. It's equal to about 50 or 60 shekels. It's one of the larger, it's not as large as a talent, but it's, it's a large uh, denomination of currency. Tekel is the Aramaic word for shekel. And then parsim is the plural of Perez. It's half a mina, uh, if we could put the, if, well, what it has is, is descending order, and if we would put this into our modern situation, we would say dollar, dime, penny. That's what it is. Large denomination, then you go down, and then finally you have the smallest denomination, a penny. This seems to indicate that bad things are happening, that are going to happen, that you start out big, and then you're Sort of cut and hat, and then you go down, and then you are simply a penny. This is not only going to affect Belshazzar, but his whole kingdom. Another way to see this is as David or Daniel interprets it: reckoned, weighed, assessed. And this is what Daniel reads: that in fact, God has numbered; He has weighed you; He has re- counted; He has weighed. And you have been found wanting. God has, in fact, numbered the days of your reign. You have been weighed by God, and you have been found wanting. This sounds rather harsh. What's this all about? Let's go back to verse number 17. And it begins, Daniel begins by basically saying, Yeah, forget whatever you want to give me as a reward. Okay. Um, he starts out, I would say, rather brusquely, if not even curt. Uh, he's rather curt. That Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And then Daniel basically begins to preach in verse number 18 Verses 18 and 19, the point number one in his sermon is that God gave Nebuchadnezzar his position. Babylon is a great empire because God made it possible. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position, he gave him all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. Nebuchadnezzar had incredible power. Snap his finger and he could have anything happen to a person that he wanted. But it is God the Most High who gave this to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, that's the first point. The second point is he became arrogant and prideful. And so God deposed him and made him like an animal. Verse 20. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. This is what God did. God raised him up and God brought him down lower than he had been before, now he's like an animal. He's like an animal. Until, and this is point three, until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged who God was. Verse 21, the second part, until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets, them, sets over them anyone he wishes. So this is the story of Nebuchadnezzar, which brings us to point four, 22. But the, you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a secret. And in fact, after Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven and he acknowledged God, he then wrote a letter to the empire acknowledging God as the true God. And Belshazzar knew that. This wasn't some type of private conversion Um, that nobody knew about, that somehow Nebuchadnezzar and God had this thing going on, but they didn't tell anybody about it. Belshazzar knew about it, which brings us to the fifth point, verse 23. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze iron wood and stone which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Handwritings on the wall Belshazzar you treated the things of God with disrespect. You uh, defiled them. Even though you knew what Nebuchadnezzar knew. In a sense, everyone else shouldn't have to go through the process that Nebuchadnezzar did because once he came to see the truth of who God was, he proclaimed it to the empire. So people know. Nebuchadnezzar was great and then suddenly he's like eating grass like a cow um, But then his sanity returns, and he acknowledges that the God of Israel is the true God. Everybody knew this. Belshazzar knew this. And when he has the cups brought from uh, the treasury that belonged to the house of God, I don't know that he's necessarily thinking, oh, I want to disrespect God. But he knows that the God of Israel is not someone to be trifled with. Story of Nebuchadnezzar. And thus, I think Daniel's message to him, we don't don't hear any mercy here. We don't even hear a call for repentance. It's you knew this and you did this anyway. And so there's the writing on the wall. Many, many take a God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. We might think that what Belshazzar did was not a big deal. Nobody got killed, no blood. You know, no one was hurt. There's no inhumanity of man to man. He simply took some gold and silver goblets that were in storage. nobody was using them anyway. And it seems that the God of Israel had abandoned his people. Um, you know, the temple's destroyed. so yeah, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But what we find in Scripture in the Old Testament is that certain places, certain objects, certain persons are set apart for God's special use because of God's choice. It's not because of anything inherently good in them. It is because God designates them as holy. This is something Israel is told time and time again. Um, Exodus 19, this is as Israel comes to Mount Sinai the first time. Um, Although the whole earth is mine, I will be for you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples." But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So Israel is known as God's holy people. Um, we have the Sabbath. It's a holy day. The Sabbath is holy. The tabernacle was seen as holy. The priests were seen as holy. What they wore was seen as holy. The sacrifices were holy. But What does that mean? I think another way to, to express it is to say that what God has put his name on is holy. So God puts his name on Israel and therefore they are his people. His name is on the tabernacle, on the priest. Um, even the Sabbath is the Lord's day. The name of the Lord has been put on it. Which means that these goblets that have been taken from the temple, God has put his name on them. They belong to him. The temple was holy because God put his name there. And what Belshazzar has done is to take that which God has put his name on and to use it in a very careless way, to treat it with contempt. To put it simply, in chapter 5, Belshazzar has broken the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Usually when we think of the third commandment, we think of people swearing and taking God's name in vain, as we call it. Um, The reality is, what we see in Belshazzar, and throughout scripture, and I would say in human history, is that such a narrow understanding is wrong. It isn't simply speaking and using God's name in a careless way. That is a part of it. But it is, in fact, to take something that belongs to God, that God has put his name on as holy, and to misuse it. To use it for a purpose other than what God intended. And with Belshazzar, I think there is a certain defiance. There is a certain presumption. Um, I think Belshazzar on some level knew what he was doing. I, I don't want to say that he's not culpable, that he's innocent, that somehow he didn't realize what he was doing. He knew were these vessels came from, these cups, these goblets. They came from the temple in Jerusalem. He knew that. He knew that in doing so, he would be belittling the God of Israel. And as I said, when I read the part, it seems that he even belittles Daniel. Aren't you one of those exiles from that, that place over there? I think he knows what he's doing. In many ways, it is a direct challenge to the God of heaven and therefore the handwriting is on the wall and we have the sermon from Daniel you will note that Daniel emphasizes the fact that Belshazzar knew what he was doing verse 22 i read earlier but you his son O Belshazzar have not humbled yourself though you knew all this instead you have set up yourself or you have set yourself up against the lord of heaven in his sin of sacrilege belshazzar has chosen darkness over light as Paul puts it in Romans 8, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. John wrote in 1 John that sin is lawlessness, breaking God's law. And in the beginning of his gospel, uh, well in chapter 3, we have Jesus saying, Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What should be apparent to us is that sin is a deliberate, conscious act of the will. In the case of Belshazzar and the rest of humanity, um, it is oftentimes a decision of the will not made in ignorance. It's not as though Belshazzar didn't know. He knew, and, and Daniel points it out to him. But he chose, in the light of what he knew, Not to accept God's grace, not to acknowledge the light of God, and not to keep God's law. In the words of Jesus, Belshazzar preferred darkness over light. He deliberately chose darkness over light. This means that such a decision of the will, such a sinful decision, um, has elements of irrationality, the demonic, but also the absurd. Were you just like, sometimes you shake yourself, your head at yourself or at others like, what was I thinking? Or what were they thinking? I knew that was wrong, they knew it was wrong, and yet they sort of walked right into it and decided to do it anyway. Consider the words of Jesus to his generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is there. He's the light of the world. He wants to gather his people to himself, and they say, absolutely not. We will not. On his way to the crucifixion, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? When things are going well, when you have knowledge of the truth, and you turn your back on it, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think will happen? As John tells us, he came into his own, and his own received him not. It is worth noting in this story that Daniel is there. He's there for Belshazzar as he had been for Nebuchadnezzar. He was there waiting to be called on. To speak. He's ready to speak. He is exactly where God has put him. He's not back home in, in Jerusalem. He's an exile. Belshazzar's right. But God is the one who brought him there. It is God who has been guiding him and watching over him. And he is there for the sinner. Belshazzar. He's exactly there if Belshazzar would just listen to what he has to say. But as I mentioned earlier, there is no call to repentance here as there was for Nebuchadnezzar. In, to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Daniel doesn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar the bad news of the dream. That's not a problem with Belshazzar. He's going to tell him exactly what God has to say. And so he starts out, as I said, rather abrupt. Yeah, keep your gifts, give it to somebody else. Uh, and by the way, you're going to be the third most powerful person in the kingdom. Really, the kingdom's about to fall. What is that? This is nothing. Keep your gifts for yourself. I'm I'm reminded of uh, Simon Magus in the book of Acts who wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, your money perish with you. Don't don't think you can buy your way out of this. There is no trace of appeal. There is no call to repentance. Daniel simply states the facts. That justify the condemnation that is the handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar knew the truth and he did not obey it. And I think this is seen in Belshazzar's reaction to what Daniel has to say. What do you think Belshazzar is going to do? Say, I'm sorry, I repent? No, verse number 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest in the kingdom. Really? That's your first thought? You're told the kingdom's about to be trashed and your first thought is, well, I better reward the guy who told me that this bad thing is going to happen to the kingdom. There's apparently no sorrow for what he has done. There's nothing like, Daniel, you are exactly right. I have committed sacrilege against the God of heaven that my predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, knew about and told us all about and I've just completely ignored it. No. So, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It's a remarkable chapter, a remarkable story. Several things here at the end that I want us to consider. The first is Daniel's attitude. I, I think his attitude is remarkable. Um, this is not good news, even for Daniel, because Daniel works within the hierarchy of the Babylonians. And if the Persians are coming in, that's not good for him. I mean, because they probably want to clean house and get rid of everyone and bring in their own people. And yet he is, in fact, going to speak the truth. But There's something else. Daniel came from a people who had turned their back on God and that's why God sent them into exile. So you're in exile and you're thinking, where is the God of Israel? And then you begin to see him working in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. It's remarkable. This pagan king is given illustration after illustration the fact that God is God. And, and he proclaims it several times. The God of Israel, he is the God of gods. So you're thinking, okay, My people back home blew it, but here we have a king, a Babylonian, who seems to see the truth of who God is. Maybe we're getting back on track, not in Jerusalem, but here in Babylon. And it disappears that quickly. When Nebuchadnezzar is gone, Belshazzar, uh, the son of his replacement, completely ignores everything that Nebuchadnezzar had learned. I think there's a lesson for us here. There is a place for optimism. I think Daniel had it, but he was also sober. We may see God working in people's lives. We may see God working in society at large. But that should not be where we put our confidence because I think we will be disappointed. I don't think that Daniel said, this is it. Nebuchadnezzar has been converted and so Babylonia as an empire is going to be a people that worship God. He sees in Belshazzar that in fact that's not going to happen. We should not be cynical. I think that's very easy for us to do. To think, oh, I saw this person and I thought they were a Christian, but then they, they went off and they did. Or we see in our country certain trends and we think, oh, this is good. We're we're getting getting back on track and then something happens, a certain election, and then then people are freaking out. I think we need the attitude of Daniel. If Daniel was in Jerusalem, or if he was in Babylon, if he was under Nebuchadnezzar or under Belshazzar, he's still doing the things that God has called him to do. We are not to trust in change, but only in the God who can bring about change. The God who speaks the word and brings it about. But if we look at human history, we know that just as people or as a people can change for the better, they can also turn around and go back to their old ways. If you've been reading with us through the Old Testament, we see that time and time again. that They, they turn away from God and God rescues them and they turn back to God and then eventually they turn away from God again. Our hope should not be in change a change that we may see or that we may anticipate. Our hope is to be in God. Jesus calls us to be salt and light. He does not call us to be somehow barometers of change that we are affecting by our lives. I dare say that the impact we may have on people's lives, we will never know about until heaven. Let's leave that to God. And this is what we see in Daniel. The second thing that we should see about chapter 4 verses chapter 5, we're told of two men, a story of contrast, one who repents and one who does not. And as difficult as it may be for us, we must acknowledge that grace was extended to one, but not to the other. Grace was extended to Nebuchadnezzar, but not to Belshazzar. It is the wisdom and grace of God that makes a difference. We saw this in Malachi in the first chapter. Um, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This is a profound mystery and one oftentimes that if we're not careful gets our hackles up because we wonder who is God to do such a thing. But we should also remember what we find in Micah, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. And in that wonderful passage in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It is the grace of God and God is a God of all grace. But in the case of Belshazzar... He deliberately chose. He knew and he decided to desecrate the things of God and no grace is shown. The third thing I'd have us consider is what are we supposed to do? I think the book of Daniel is appropriate for us. We are a, an ever-shrinking minority as the Jews were in Babylon. Um, we're surrounded by a pagan society. What is it that we are supposed to do? I think we can look to Daniel and look to God for wisdom. There are times when we are speaking the gospel to people that we can speak with gentleness. And there are times when we will speak with harshness. The the mental picture I have of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar is someone who is standing right next to him and he wants to hold him. He doesn't want this judgment to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. With Belshazzar, There's a chasm. The Grand Canyon is between them. And Daniel's on this side and he's telling Belshazzar, you "You have been weighed and found wanting and the Persians are coming. Why didn't he do this with Belshazzar? Well, I think there is a time when we are to be gentle and there's a time when we are not. There's a time when we stand next to people and there's a time when we are to stand apart. But we need to look to God by his spirit for wisdom. You can't make up a rule book about in these circumstances stand next to people in these circumstances stand apart. I do think it is very clear here Belshazzar knew what was right and he went against it. And to someone who deliberately says no, I will not do this. Um, I don't know that yeah, here, brother, let me stand with you. I think there needs to be, okay, you're over there. You have chosen deliberately to disobey God. And I will tell you the truth. You may not like it, but I'm not going to stand right next to you. I'm gonna, there's going to be a distance between us because by God's grace, I choose to obey the truth, the light, and you choose darkness instead. Then the last thing. And this, I think, will require a lot of meditation and thinking about. Belshazzar's sin was misusing the things that belong to God. I think we may be guilty of the same things at times, and we need to consider this. Do you remember the story when the, the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus? And they wanted to say, they asked him, Are we supposed to pay taxes? Because if he said yes, then the Jewish people would say, well, you, you sold out. If he said no, then the Romans might come and arrest him. And what did he say? Look at the coin. Whose image is that? Caesar's. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. The coin has Caesar's image. What has God's image? We do. We are made in the image of God. So to misuse the things of God, that includes us, to misuse ourselves, to use our lives, our talents, whatever it is God has given us, in the wrong way. I think that that's on par with what Belshazzar did. God is gracious, and I I pray that he will open our eyes to see when we do this. But the reality is, we belong to God. We are holy. His name is on us. That means we need to be very careful in what we do. How we live our lives. Um, Yeah. God's name is on us. And by God's grace, let us take care how we live our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this chapter. Even culturally, it's come down to us all these centuries later. The expression, the handwriting is on the wall. This is more than just about this big handwriting on the wall. It is a story of contrast between a man who repented and one who did not. One who acknowledged you and one who did not. One who consciously chose to misuse your things the things that had your name on them that belong to you I thank you for Daniel Seem to matter, no matter what the administration whether he's back home in Jerusalem or in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar as we'll see next week under Darius he is faithful to you he trusts in you Not in the changes that he sees happening. It must have been very exciting for him to see a pagan king acknowledge you. But his faith was in you. We live in a time when we find ourselves so easily excited by politics, by political things. Where we see possible change or we despair over the impossibility of change somehow our eyes are taken off of you. As we walk through this world, as we speak to people, may we consider Daniel's example that sometimes we speak gently, sometimes harshly, but may we look to your spirit for wisdom. I think we don't have this wisdom on our own. And above all, may we recognize that you have put your name on us. We are your holy people. We have the name of God on us. We are to be careful. We are to take great care in how we use our lives and use the gifts that you've given us. How we use those things that have your name on them. I think that this requires a lot of thought and meditation and may your spirit bring these things forward to our hearts and our minds in the coming days as we consider what we've learned here in Daniel 5. All things belong to you, our health, and so we pray for those that are sick, for Nia and for Gia, but even the animals and trees. And we pray about the two trees, actually there are three planted out front, don't seem to be doing that well, You are the God of creation. May these trees grow and prosper and show your beauty to the world. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.